Okay? And unionists representing domestic helpers say a $100 increase is not enough. And that's all the news from RTHK. I'm Dr. Emma Nam. The pandemic is surging with more contagious mutant strains. The elderly are at the highest risk if a new wave comes. Scientific data shows that those with stable health can receive COVID-19 vaccines. Take your elderly relatives to get the jab at community vaccination centers, designated general outpatient clinics, elderly health centers, private clinics, or hospital COVID-19 vaccination stations, or opt for the home vaccination service. Welcome to an extended version of The Week on 3. I'm Christy Lai. And I'm Yuki Zhang. Since it's a special holiday today, we're bringing you an extra 20 minutes of some exciting interviews from the past week here on Radio 3. Why don't we start today's program with a bit of food? I'm sure everyone is hungry at this time of the day. On Tuesday, wellness coach Muskan Samtani joined Sadia Osmani for Soundbite to share her favorite childhood food memories and offer her tips on go-to foods to keep you lean and healthy. So honestly, before I even get into that part of sharing a favorite food memory, there's something quickly I want to delve into with the connection of food and emotion because it plays such a huge role in how we associate and go to certain categories of food because we have a memory attached to it. And oftentimes this term of emotional eating comes into play because of that, because food is symbolic of celebrations, festivals, gatherings, you know, your time around a dinner table with your family mm. and just so much. There's a huge element of nostalgia that's attached to food and it's almost like music you can feel like you time traveled back to that exact yes, moment absolutely when you see something how it felt right. uh-huh. so you know for someone for example it could be like m&ms when growing up as a reward your parent gave you a you know a pack of m&ms because you did well at school and so now when you grow up and you sort of look back at that void you feel when you haven't done something you know well enough you go back to those m&ms and there's that emotional eating attached so that's something to be mindful of when you think of food memories and almost be aware of why do I have this so association. So tell me about your food so, memories now. Um, it's, it's amazing when I think about food memories because it's all to do with my mother. Uh-huh. <laughs> and she yeah, loves- it usually is. It's amazing how many people actually come on the program and it goes straight back to their childhood. Yeah. It goes back to their mother or their grandmother. Yeah. So for you, it's your mother. It's my mother who loves cooking. I mean, she could be in the kitchen for 18 hours a day and enjoy every second of it and just the joy she gets in feeding her family. And I think that always got us ex- excited as kids because we 
sat on that dinner table thinking, oh my gosh, like the moment I'm going to have this first bite, she's going to jump and ask, oh, how did you like it? And you know, what what is this new thing like? So for me, I particularly remember this um, memory around mangoes. So for example, for for Indians in the summer, Alfonso mangoes is a huge thing. Oh yes, they're delicious. So the moment you think about them, they're just delicious with this beautiful orange, bright orange that's put right in front of you and all you want to do is devour. So um, for me, it was the idea of having it three times a day during the summer. You know, your breakfast started with mango milkshake, your lunch had mangoes in it, your you know dinner had some, some portion of mangoes in it. So everything was around this happy moment of having mangoes together. Mm-hmm. So that would be my, my favorite memory of uh, my childhood with my mom and having um, this, this yummy so, dessert. So when you get hold of sort of Alfonso mangoes now, is that something that you, does that always come into your mind of, of your childhood? It actually does. And there's, there's that association, emotional association with that food because I miss my mom here in Hong Kong and she's far back and in Canada. And she's in Canada. Canada. You're, you're originally from Canada, That's right. You? Yeah, I've been in Hong Kong for over 12 years but you always feel that worry when you miss your family so what do I do in the summer I jump on the mangoes the moment (laughs) they arrive in Hong Kong but as a wellness coach I've realized over time what's important is to see whether or not it still serves what it was serving at that time and whether Mm. or not your body really requires as many of those yeah I suppose going back when you're a child um, you're using a lot of energy and you know you need and and mangoes are packed full of energy and I would say I mean there is me fattening aren't they they are high in sugar sugar, (laughs) as much as we'd like to say that they're not um so you know we'll talk about the kind of foods in a few moments but before that you know for yourself you you have like two children and do you can you see at the moment because you're almost you're building those memories at the moment um can you see at the moment that there's particular foods that they always ask for and you can see almost that those memories are being built as you speak absolutely there's such a correlation and it, it's almost like you see you're reliving your childhood when you become a mother and you you feel like you're you're automatically back into that exact situation that you were in as a child and now you are playing this role as a mother and having to you know offer these nutritious meals but at the same time being mindful about the content of sugar and you know how much salt and sodium and I think nowadays there's so much awareness about the detrimental effects of what sugar can do to a child's brain and so when you learn about these things and you realize that may not have been a part of your childhood as much Mm. but it is something to be aware of and and yet make it joyful and and fun and have that conversation around a dinner table about how much you enjoy that particular food so for me it comes from a place of joy for myself so so it was definitely the mangoes is there anything else that sort of comes into mind when you think well there's tons i mean um you know like i said for my mom veggies was a huge part so again i appreciate the diverse palette that i have today especially after being married and I see my husband's not so (laughs) a bit of a fussy palate and I realize I'm like thank you mom for just like you know making food such a joy and just bringing everything out on the table and making sure that we enjoyed every bit of it because now I don't question Mm. I don't look at food and you get your kids to kind of try everything new and you know they don't I mean quite a few kids will just say no I don't like that I don't like peas (laughs) so do you actually then make a point that listen you, you should try it at least so here's the thing I've, I've switched the the conversation a bit as opposed 
to saying, you should try this, I always say how much I love it. Mm -hmm. And I feel that that changes the dynamics a bit where I'm not telling them what to do, but I'm telling them what I love. Mm -hmm. And then it's a choice. And when it becomes a choice where they freely move into that space and say, hey, yeah, I want to try this because mom likes it. Mm -hmm. We oftentimes are the biggest role models for our kids. You know, as parents, they really look up to us to do the kind of things that we do. So when I tell them I'm a wellness coach and, you know, I just love food and I love that I can make people feel better about their health and their bodies and they're like, hmm, okay, this is great. You know, I want to try this out. And so I find that a bit more effective as opposed to going the other way around and feeling frustrated when they don't try something that I suggest. Mm, mm. Okay, moving on a bit, I just really wanted to ask you, now it's always a bit of a dilemma. When people are trying to lose weight or stay fit, um, you know, suddenly you do have this great pang of hunger and then you just grab what's in front of you or you look in the fridge. So what are the kind of go-to um, items of food that you would recommend that people eat, you know, which are not going to have a detrimental effect, which are good for you as well. What would you say? So there's definitely, you know, a whole lot that can be spoken about when it comes to the kind of foods that we can go to in terms of, you know, healthy alternatives. I mean, there's a lot of study and, and articles that one can read about. But what I can simply say is, and almost the word that I just use is simplicity. When you go towards your meal preps as in, um, you know, almost sort of an idea of keeping it simple without the um, added ingredients, you know, too many sauces and too many flavorings and making it, you know, super indulgent, you almost enjoy the meal for what it is as opposed to going for the refills because that's what the sauces are there to do. Mm. They almost make you tempted to go back for that refill and then feel like you've overeaten. Yeah. And that was Muskan Samtani with Sadia Usmani. This week on The Common Room, Alison is continuing to interview some of the most popular stars. Yes, indeed. And this week, we get to hear from the second youngest EGOT musician, John Legend, who just released his double-sided album, Legend. I've always really liked John's music, especially all of you. And in The Common Room this week, Alison had the chance to chat with the legend himself at a press conference. We are so pumped for your album. We can't stop playing it. But also, it was nice to see you doing such a beautiful performance at the Emmys. And Pieces is just the perfect piece for your performance. What does that performance mean to you? Well, whenever we get to honor all these great artists and actors who um, have impacted all of our lives, we've been watching them for years, it's a wonderful thing. And uh, this song, uh, Pieces, is an original song that um, we wrote about uh, experiencing loss, experiencing heartbreak, and how you move on from that, how you carry that with you and keep living, but uh, you still carry the pain with you. And uh, I think it's a, a good song um, to think about, um, you know, honoring those that we've lost, honoring the heartbreak that we feel when we lose them, um, but learning to continue to live on. Yes, it's absolutely perfect. Such a John Legend moment. So thank you for bringing that to us. Thank you. John, we just talked about live performances and I have to come to you with my own observations. The last time you came to Hong Kong, we went with uh, another couple. The ladies loved even just holding a ticket to a John Legend concert. And then obviously we dragged our husbands with us. The husbands were a bit skeptical at the beginning, but halfway through, they're like really into it. I think your music is just something magical about it. You just shows them how to appreciate women. So if you could ask men 
all men in the world to listen to a John Legend song and understand what women wants to feel. What song would you like to recommend them to listen to? Oh, I think we've got a few on this album. I think Nervous is one. I think Stardust is one. Wonder Woman. A lot of songs from the second act, especially, I think, are really um, about what it means to be in a deep relationship with someone that you really care about. And um, you want to make them happy, but they also make you so happy and make you get butterflies and get nervous and all the things that we talk about in the songs. And I Don't Love You Like I Used To is one of my favorites because it's about what it means to be in a deep relationship with someone that um, grows beyond early infatuation, grows beyond the early honeymoon period, and is deep and, and rooted in in real experiences in life and real challenges that you face. So um, there's so many good songs, particularly in act two, but uh, I think I have a lot of music that will help people come together, will spice up the relationship, help it get stronger. Uh, I've got the remedy for you. <laughs> yes, and it's good for the whole family too. My daughters love dancing to your tunes. Wonderful. My kids love dancing to it too. Uh, they're my biggest fans, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Do they have a favorite song to listen to on the way to school? Oh, they love dancing to all the up-tempo songs. They love Dope and All She Want to Do and Strawberry Blush. Uh, Guy Like Me. They love all the up-tempo songs. Nice. Great chase. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. You got my eye, eye, eye with the strawberry
That was Strawberry Blush by legendary singer John Legend. Hey Christy, have you watched the movie Don't Look Up? Yes, I did. And I always wonder what will happen to us if an asteroid hits Earth. Don't worry. The United States NASA recently launched a mission, and it purposely crashed a spacecraft into an asteroid. And on this week's back chat, Professor Quentin Parker from the University of Hong Kong's Laboratory for Space Research told Janice Wong and Danny Gittings why. Yes, well,、um, you had a kind of 600 kilogram、um, satellite smashing in to uh, the uh, dimorphous, very small asteroid at about 22,500 kilometers per hour. So there's a lot of kinetic energy in that collision, and、um, and so the idea with this whole mission, this、uh, um, DART mission, when DART stands for Double Asteroid Redirection Test, it's called Double Asteroid because、um, uh, this dimorphous is actually、uh, part of a,、um, of a of a binary. There's a much larger one, and this is the smaller one in the two that are that are orbiting around each other.、Uh, it's only about this one is only about the size of a, of a football pitch or so, and so、uh, this the the, the satellite crashed. Into this one at that high speed, and the idea with this whole whole mission is that can you change the orbit of an asteroid like that with such a collision? The idea being, of course, that、uh, if we can do that when the asteroid is still a really long way away from the Earth, then you change the orbit very slightly. Well, over the distance that the asteroid is away by the time it gets to the Earth, when it would have collided, will now miss the Earth. So the whole idea is, can we、um, sort of avoid? Cataclysmic,、um, you know, disaster by、uh, getting making a, a deflection of an asteroid that was on an impact trajectory with our Earth, and therefore saving the Earth. I mean, that's basically the whole idea. Yeah, but that, 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 we don't know that whether they succeeded, do we? I mean, it's been treated as a well, great, great success because they actually managed to hit the asteroid. But、um, yes. nobody yet knows whether it's actually changed its path. It might just be continuing. Well, it this- takes time to figure it out because you know these orbits are, 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 are. You need to measure very precisely these bodies over a period of time to check whether the orbit has changed. So we can see that it impacted successfully. There was a small、uh, CubeSat that the Italians designed、uh, that was、uh, launched by the other satellites. Actually, look at the impact, take images of it, and send those back to Earth. We haven't got those back yet, but when we do,、uh, we'll、uh, actually look at what the impact was, and then we'll track these asteroids over a period of time, several weeks, a month or so, and then we can check. The observed new trajectory with the predicted trajectory from its previous orbit, and see if there's been a deflection. So, so how difficult would you say it was for the、uh, spacecraft to hit the asteroid、uh, with uh, such precision? I mean,、uh, like you mentioned, the, the spacecraft is uh, uh, like the size of a vending machine, and the asteroid, a, a football stadium. And、uh, but, but, but I mean, the, the thing is, the distance between the two was 11 million kilometers, right? I mean. <laughs> You know, the,、uh, the satellite was launched、um, uh, in November last year, and it smashed into its target in less than a year. And so, you know, I mean, we're getting very good now. At,、uh, you know, we can we can dock with the space shuttle.、Um, uh, you know, sorry, we can dock with the space station、um, very easily now, and that's you know like a needle in the haystack in space. And you can send up your docking, and you can dock with it.、Uh, you know, we can send things out to Lagrangian points, and we can send things to them. You know, it's now very precise. Uh, processes and technologies that we have that allow us to to、uh, match、um, orbits and, and therefore and also close in on on a, on a target. It's not the first time we've done this. It was a, it was done already with a, with another mission, Deep Impact.、Um, uh, <laughs> Hang on, you really you really are str- going into Hollywood movies there, aren't you? Right? Do they do, are they naming these missions after the movie, or is the movie being named after the mission? <laughs> 
I don't know about that. I mean, you know, whatever captures the public imagination, because, you know, the public, uh, when they engage with missions like this, it helps NASA, it helps uh, justify the funding. You know, but this is existential stuff, because if we can... if we detect a hazardous asteroid, and we're looking for them all the time, but they're missing a lot, but when we find one that's uh, potentially on an Earth-crossing orbit, i.e., but the, the, the asteroid could collide with the Earth, depending on the size of the asteroid, it could create local damage, it could create um, countrywide damage, or it could create global damage, depending on the size. I mean, the last one that collided uh, with the Earth of any significance was back in 1908, you know, with the Tunguska event that flattened 20,000 um, square kilometres of Siberian forest. I mean, if that happened in Europe, or, you know, hit, hit the city of London, I mean, you know, you'd, you'd have the devastation over much of England. To, or to, in Hong Kong, you know, you'd wipe out Hong Kong. So these things happening all the time at smaller, larger and very large levels over hundreds, thousands and millions of years. It really depends on the statistical probability. We will be hit again. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but it's a question of if there's a big one, can we deflect it by detecting it early enough that we can avoid this cataclysmic collision with the Earth that wiped out the dinosaurs was the last big one 65 million years ago? Yeah, there's presumably limits to how big a, a, an asteroid we can deflect, right? You, you said this one's the size of a football pitch, but say, say it's the size of a small moon or something. I mean, hitting, hitting it with, a, uh, with, one, with, with one of our rockets, is, is that, presumably that's not going to have enough of an impact. So with, this will work up to a certain size, but not beyond. Well, actually, what it is, it's a testing of the principle that it can work, that we can impact. You know, we know the approximate mass of this small uh, um, um, asteroid, Dimorphos. We know the mass of the uh, collider, our satellite. We know the kinetic energy of the collision. And if we make assumptions about the, the, the structure of this um, asteroid and its uh, physical integrity, I think, and I don't know if you looked at the images of this thing, it looks like a, you know, it looks like a, a lemon that's been, uh, been coated in sugar and then wrapped in dust. I mean, it, all these things are barely hanging on because the, the gravity of this body is so small. It's just like a conglomerate of stuff that's attracted together and formed this oval body. Uh, no craters on it at all, of course. Cause it, but anyway, um, so, yeah, I mean, it depends really on, 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 on the sizes and masses of the bodies that are working. So we don't just have to send one. If we see something big, we can send many satellites at great cost. But, you know, we spend a trillion dollars, say, on a mission to save the Earth. I mean, that's worth every single penny <laughs> and more. So... Uh, so we're just demonstrating the technology can work to deflect something, and then you just scale up the calculations, the masses, the speeds, you know, and you get and you. So this is basically the part of the process of, of you know, of Earth defence that's been going on for a while. First of all, we need to find these things, find if any of them are in dangerous Earth-crossing orbits, and once we find them, then are any of them creating a problem for us in the future, a hundred years down the track, a thousand years, and if we if they are. Can we do something about it? Another, so this is the first part of the process of seeing if we can do something about it. For the first time, it looks like we can. Professor Quentin Parker from the University of Hong Kong on Backchat. Speaking about space, would you ever consider visiting space for leisure if you could? Well, of course I would love to, but I don't think I can afford it. Um, I think I would just be realistic about traveling. Where is this one place you would go to if you can right now? Japan! It's basically everyone's favorite holiday destination. I think most Hong Kongers would want to go there instantly if they could. And considering the fact that there is no longer any hotel quarantine, I think everyone would just fly off if they could. Yes indeed. I would love to go on holiday if I could. Speaking of which, up next, 
I spoke to Noreen Mir about why people love going traveling and unravels some of the reasons why Hong Kongers love Japan so much. Yes. So,、um, since Noreen, you said you've been looking at flights, where is a place that you want to go? Ngozhou.、Um, I want to go Australia. to Australia.、Mm. Yeah, I think Ngozhou is pretty. You know, it's just so relaxing, and you know, there's so much to explore,、mm. and we've got family there as、mm, well. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. What about you? Where would you go to? For me, it's either Japan or Taiwan. Japan is a popular yes. destination. Yes,、exactly. good old good old Japan. Yes, it's a firm favorite of Hong Kongers.、It's、exactly,、like、people people dub it like a second home or something. Actually, yes,、uh, it is. Actually, there is an actual Cantonese phrase dedicated to that term. No, it's called Fan Hong Ha. <laughs> Van Hoa isn't that usually when people say they go back to their home country? Exactly. Like,、yeah. Because like what you said, people treat Japan as like their second home. They、um, go to Japan so much that it's dubbed Van Hoa. Yes, yes, and our wonderful colleague Angie Mann is a firm <laughs> is a firm Japanese Hoa. Yeah, I mean she's you know born and raised in Hong Kong, but definitely、uh, she loves to visit Japan. You know as as much as she can. In fact, she actually booked tickets to Japan <laughs> already. <laughs> Brilliant.、Um, are there certain cities that Hong Kongers like to go to? Actually, yes.、Uh, according to、uh, some research I done last night,、uh, Japan, like we've mentioned, is a very popular tourist tourist destination. So, according to、uh, Trip dot com, they said that、uh, the number the, there is a very Very exponential increase in percentages of ticket sales. So, for instance, number one favorite of Hong Kongers is Tokyo. Oh, good old,、mm-hmm. good old Dongging. Yes, Dongging, where Disneyland is. Yes, yes, yes. I really like the Disneylands over there because it's just. Huge! I've never been to their Disneyland. Oh, oh okay, that's definitely one for yeah, the kids. Yeah, it's、okay. definitely one for the kids because there's two Disneylands. There's Tokyo Land and Sea. I did not know that. Yes,、oh. so there, it's basically、uh, the sea is basically under the sea type of feel to it,、oh. but there's still rides for kids for adults to enjoy. I've、yeah. been living under a rock. Okay, so Disneyland in、mm. Tokyo, Dongging. Dongging Dixie Lane. Dongging Dixie Lane. And then next is Bangkok and Osaka, also in Japan, Taiwan, and Seoul and Singapore. Oh, Seoul! I've never been to Seoul before.、Mm. I've been there once when I was a kid, but I was a joint sort of like a tourist group where、uh, a lot of people that don't know each other. They're sort of leaded by a guide,、mm-hmm. and then they take them around tourist attractions. But、uh, those those times in the I think early two thousands, a lot of tour guides actually take you to shopping locations. Oh yeah, it's, very, it's a very common practice、yes. to you know to try and because they get some sort of a commission. Exactly. If, the more you shop, the more they get. Yes, and might.、Uh, Didn't really know much about the country when I was younger, so I couldn't really appreciate everything there. And K-pop or K-dramas, K-culture wasn't really a thing back then. So maybe I. You're revealing your age now, Gracie. <laughs> <laughs> 
I know, I know what you mean. Um, back to Fan Hang Ha. Um, are you are you a big fan of Japan? Then I mean, have you looked at flights to Japan? Or you know, like many Hong Kongers, Japan is a popular destination. Have you looked there? Why do you like Japan? Uh, for me, I think. Uh, uh, for me, it's definitely food. <laughs> I'm very food driven, so people that know me in real life, the only thing that I think about is food. I can I can attest to that. Every morning, <laughs> our conversation with Christy is like, "Oh, I'm so hungry. Let's have breakfast." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think sushi, uh, ramen, sukiyaki. These are just fan favorite Hong Kong Hong Kongers' favorites. Uh, just Japanese food in general. Yeah, there's mm-hmm. this vibe I get from Japan. Like, um, whenever whenever I'm on the subway, because I mean, mm-hmm. is no secret, I'm quite chatty. I feel like I'm a different person in Japan. Exactly. Very quiet. Mm-hmm. I observe more mm-hmm. because it's just um, you just don't want to be too rude. And I don't yes. know why I'm whispering. Well, I'm not whispering. But I don't know why I'm lowering <laughs> my tone. Because in Japan, I feel like I have to be uh, a bit more quiet. Exactly. Uh, unless then you go to the night markets and you mm-hmm. explore the nightlife. Then yes. you're like, then it's like, wow. Yes, exactly. Wow. Because I think in Japan, they have sort of this courteous sort of atmosphere and everybody respects each other and they try to just limit volume on the subways or public transport in general. So yeah, I do get that vibe. And uh, I think hot springs or onsens are also one of the reasons why people like to go to Japan. Oh, yeah. Especially in the wintertime. Oh, yeah, onsens. Mm-hmm. One tune. Yes, one tune. One tune. Oh, really yeah. nice. Yeah, that's, that's, mm-hmm. that sounds good. For, for a cold summer's day, uh, sorry, a cold winter's day. <laughs> <laughs> Look at the temperature right now. It's quite it's too warm for that. Mm-hmm. Right, all right. And uh, in terms of uh, tickets, uh, is it quite expensive or do you have any tips on when, you know, when to book flights or, you know, because some people, the, rumor has it if you book flights on a Tuesday, mm. it's cheaper. I've actually I've heard from a couple of friends saying that uh, flights to uh, a single one-way flight to the UK is around 9,000 Hong Kong dollars. Wow. It's very expensive. Ho in guai. my opinion, yes. Hi, ho guai, ho guai. Ho guai is exactly. exp- very expensive. Ho, 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 ho guai. Yes. We call that hoi xin ga, oh. which means seafood price if you translate it literally, yeah. which means that uh, the prices for uh, tickets will fluctuate yeah. exactly at any given time. So um, I really don't have any tips, for instance, but... Uh, keep d- checking. Keep checking different sites. Try comparing what's best for you, whether the itinerary or the time of the flight suits your needs. Because some people actually like overnight flights. Because when they, they can uh, go on the flight, sleep for several hours, and then just get out the plane, go through the hotel, and straight into having fun and enjoying the city, the culture, the people, the food. Uh, for me, I don't like Leng San Gay because I have to get up really early. That was Noreen Mir and me, Christy Lai. So, Yuki, are you a fan of turtles? Yes, I'm quite a big fan of them. I have very fond memories of them, especially after watching the movie Finding Nemo when I was younger. I remember always seeing some at Ocean Park back in the day, but I don't seem to see them very often in Hong Kong now. Actually, 
Do you know that Hong Kong is home to five native species of turtles? To know more, Phil was joined by Marine Pierce and Adam Francis, a professional wildlife photographer. Adam recently published his book, A Field Guide to the Turtles of Hong Kong. Let's hear more from him and the challenges he faced when researching for his book. Thanks, guys. Yeah, Pleasure to be here. That was an overture and a half, wasn't it? You better be good. <laughs> Marin. Well, we might as well get into turtles and book covers and that because um, there are so many cool things to talk about. So if we uh, start off with Turtles Guide, this um, what I love about this book is that I've seen it online, Adam, that you've co-authored it with someone else. Tell us about how you came about creating the book and who your co-author is. Sure. Um, so as you mentioned, this is the second um, in a growing series of field guides yeah. that I've uh, produced. I don't know how to describe you anymore, Adam, because like, I, I can't say reptiles. And that, you better tell me what I can say, because the next one isn't out yet, is it? <laughs> <laughs> sure. No, no. Well, I, I don't get too hung up um, on the labels, I suppose. But I, I guess naturalist is probably the best way. It's, cool. uh, you know, I'm, I'm somebody who's very much interested in the wild world, uh, documenting it and trying to structure the information I obtain and visuals I obtain in a format that's consumable for the general public. Um, and all of that helps us learn a bit more, get a bit more excited about these things. And the Turtles book is the latest in uh, my attempt to do that. Um, so a field guide to the turtles of Hong Kong. If you're with us on Facebook Live, I've put his beautiful promo shot up because it's not just of the book. It's all of the guys who are contained in it, isn't it? That's correct. And you may notice the book itself uh, doesn't have a lot of flair uh, on the cover. So the marketing has to be a little bit more punchy. Kind of looks like a Gideon uh, Bible, but with turtles, you know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so we could call it the Turtles Bible. Yeah, you go, uh, man. If we wanted to. Um, but there's a reason for all of that. So getting to um, how the book was pulled together, uh, very much in line with the snakes. I spent a lot of time in the jungles around Hong Kong, uh, searching for these animals and photographing them, documenting their behavior, and then compiling all that information into this book. Now, the cover is nondescript for a reason. It's because it's made out of a waterproof PVC material because the intention is for these books to be very usable as well as a pleasure to read and look at the pictures in. Right. Um, and so uh, my uh, co-producer on the book was actually my daughter this time, Eleanor Francis, and uh, she was very handy in the pulling together of the creative materials, a lot of the creative editing, and as well as setting up the storefront um, for us to have our direct sales open once we launched the book. Wonderful. So it's been a real pleasure pulling it together. It was a natural kind of organic follow-on to um, uh, the Snakes book. And putting together a book, uh, the photos in the book, I think there was, well, well there's, was there 70 pages in the book, something like that, and you've got hundreds of photos in there. I think we've lost Marin. Marin's having a freeze. Are you still with us, Adam? So, yeah, and I've got Marin on mine as well. Okay, so he, he's worry. coming through with this, me. This but his quick question was his question was about the photos in the book. He was asking yeah. if I produce them all, if some others produce them. So I produced, I think, every photo in the book, if I'm not mistaken, except one. I got a great photo of a female Reeves Terrapin yeah. from a good friend of mine, James Kwok, who's part of a group called the Wildlife Avengers, who do a lot of great conservation and photography work themselves. Yes. Um, but all the rest should be mine. Um, so a lot of time laying down in the mud and stream beds. 
trying to uh, grab that perfect angle. I've seen one of your book talks, and it is fascinating, and you very much do stay on topic with the creatures themselves, but I guess the photographing of these guys is a totally different talk because so much to share, probably, technically. Yeah, I think if you're going to start talking about the techniques to photograph, um, it really is kind of its own vertical yeah. uh, as a discussion. It could be a, a week-long training course just to get you started, and then it's a few years of dialing in yourself um, yeah. to get to the point where the images you're capturing are what you see in your mind's eye. A uh, really, really fascinating part, actually. It's something people are usually quite interested in. Yeah, why don't we have a look at one or two? He's given us three or four you know, really cool, clear, close-up beauties of these guys. Merrin, what do you want to do? Oh, there's this one with those beautiful ruby eyes. It's just amazing when you look at it. Uh, that would be the one odd thing to start with. Yeah, join us on Facebook Live. The brew is our page, and you can see all this stuff now. It's worth it, I can assure you. Go on, Mary. Yeah, what is it? Because there's not only the red eye, there's then these stripes coming down its neck that are brilliant red as well. Yeah, so this is a really interesting species. This is called a Beale's four-eyed turtle, mm -hmm. and it's so named because uh, the species on top of its head uh, you won't be able to see from this angle, but on top, there are uh, markings that look like an additional set of eyeballs. So mm -hmm. if you're looking at it from over the top, like a predator might be, it looks like it's staring right back at you. Um, uh, and this one is actually, this is actually a male. So the male and the females are very uh, uh, different in terms of their appearance. Females are brownish yeah. with pinkish type stripes and uh, bright yellow dots on the head. And the males are this incredible, vibrant red with black and those incredible ruby red eyes last time you and i spoke adam we talked about the colors on these creatures and very much that um a bright color means be careful i i'm i'm either a great bluffer or i can have you now this guy doesn't just have bright oranges and reds he has like looking like like spikes so is he a dangerous guy <laughs> or is he a bluffer no actually in fact there's there's zero danger to any of our <laughs> native turtle species except Maybe um, the Chinese softshell or the big-headed turtle could give you a nice little nip. Well, this guy, um, but scary. nothing that's gonna. He well, I, he looks very, very interesting for sure, and the color certainly uh, the black and the red, <laughs> you know, quite a Beautiful. quite shocking for sure. I mean, duh. But everything Adam's going to be talking about today is from Hong Kong, and that's the beauty of these discussions, right, Mary? Yeah, it is, and I suppose that's the quick reminder of some of the stats we should get into. Um, how many are native from Hong Kong, and how many in your book are introduced visitors? Yeah, well, that's an interesting topic, too, because the majority are actually introduced. Mm. Uh, we have actually only, only six native turtle species, um, but they're all really, really interesting. Most of them are endangered or critically endangered, and Hong Kong's quite unique in that it's one of the last bastions of wild uh, habitat for a lot of these species, including some of the really sought after ones like the golden coin turtles. Um, now the introduced species, you can kind of split that into two different categories. You've got introduced and established, and then you've got invasive. So introduced, um, you could find some turtles out there in the wild that may be introduced from the pet trade. They may or may not be able to establish a breeding population. They may not last the winter. Mm. Um, but there's so many that come from that area that it's hard to say actually how many introduced species there may be here. How might they have been introduced? Most likely through the pet trade. It's possible um, there was some accidental uh, introduction through shipment of plant material and things like that, but most likely through the pet trade when it comes to turtles. Um, now, when it comes to the invasive species, there's not a lot of them, but there's one in particular, the red-eared slider turtle, which is going to be the ones that you see in like Hong Kong Park on Hong Kong Island, for example. Uh, those are incredibly robust turtles that can survive Hong Kong winters. 
They eat just about everything, including other turtles, if they get a chance. And uh, they really have been shown to have a detrimental effect on the environments where they've set up breeding populations. So you mentioned like that Hong Kong park and that. Does the government uh, kind of cull or manage the numbers of those um, turtles or do they just say, oh, it's good, it's easy to survive and they just let them go? Yeah, I don't know of any culling programs. I think in Hong Kong Park, they're relatively contained because it's surrounded by main roads and things like and that. And they're kind of meant I, I to be there, aren't they, in a way? Yeah, I, I'm not sure if they were meant to be there or if that's just um, the the ones they started with and how much thought actually went into that. Mm. Um, but they're certainly they certainly seem to be contained there. In terms of other areas, things like I know Lions Nature Park, for example, definitely has some redders that have been introduced, and that's maybe a bit more of a problem. Um, but to your point, Marin, I don't know of any uh, structured programs for culling at this stage. I'm not even really entirely sure how much attention there is on the issue. There's so many other pressing concerns at any given moment. Um, and this is a discrete area, but this is also one of the reasons I thought the book would be helpful because these are actually really special and charismatic animals, but they, and they don't really get a lot of attention or face time, largely because especially the native species, yeah. many people probably have never seen them. They're very difficult to oh. come by. And so many people may not even know that these things exist in Hong Kong. And that was Adam Francis, professional wildlife photographer, speaking with Phil Whelan and Marion Pierce on The Brew. And finally, to end today's special edition of The Week on 3, we'll once again leave you with our dear friend Steve James, who is taking us back to the 1930s to celebrate the birthday of Jerry DeCalli Lee Louis. That's it from us. Hope you enjoy our time with us here on The Week on 3. I'm Christy Lai. And I'm Yuki Zeng. Bye, Bye for now. now. The Steve James Afternoon Drive. The craggly, ruddy faces and the scratchy, phlegmy voices. On Radio 3. Am I supposed to be learning something from this? The factories may be roaring yeah. With the boom a lack a zoom a lack a And wee. here we go, Eddie But there isn't any roar when the clock strikes four, four. Everything stops for tea And stand by Now I know just why Franz Schubert yes. Didn't finish his unfinished symphony Tell me He might have written more But the clock struck four right. And everything stops for tea Tea break this afternoon Well, we're celebrating the music and the birthday of Jerry Lee Lewis, born this day, 1935. American singer and pianist, of course, often known by his name, his nickname, The Killer. This day, 1976, enjoying his own birthday celebrations, he accidentally shot his bass player, Norman Owens, right in the chest. Lewis had been blasting holes in an office door. Owens survived, but sued his boss. If you hear somebody knocking on your door, if you see something falling across the floor, please, it'll be me. And I'll be looking for you. If you see a head of peeping from across that hole, if you see somebody climbing up a telephone pole, maybe it'll be me. And I'll be looking for you. Gonna look on a Search all the forest, looking at every tree. 